what problem are we trying to solve? And yes, sometimes, I mean, he'll, he'll even say that before I even ask the question sometimes in a meeting or, uh, you know, if he and I are kind of debating a topic or whatever, and, um, his, his name's John and I'm like, yeah, like that's it. And I find myself using that actually a lot in coaching soccer of what problem are we trying to solve? And, you know, I mean, to your point, I mean, you don't have to do it like everybody else. Right. And that is such the, the cool thing about our game is that you can truly carve out like a unique individual, you know, kind of <laughs> put the, the pieces of the jigsaw together, make it work kind of thing. And, This is the On The Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. Before we get going in episode 14 of the On The Touchline podcast, I need your help. If you could go to Apple Podcast and leave a five-star rating and a review if you like this show. Based on your feedback on social media, based on DMs that I've received, based on text messages, emails, it seems like you're enjoying the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. But I need your help in pushing us up the podcast rankings when it comes to soccer podcast so more and more people can find this show. All right, we'll get on with the show. But first, a quick word from our sponsor, Flipboard. At the end of 2018... I had the opportunity to go on another podcast, uh, the 343 podcast with John Peronich. And John always asks any of his guests at the end of his show, what do people need to know? And the answer that I gave John is very fitting for this particular episode. I say that because the answer I gave was that someone's soccer journey is theirs not someone else's you're not waiting for a magic envelope to show up in your mailbox to tell you what to do with your soccer journey it isn't necessarily group think in terms of well all my friends are doing this so I should probably do it it's your journey and you should decide where you want it to go and how you want it to proceed as a player as a coach as anyone as a parent that loves this game I've often said that I love road less traveled people. I find these folks incredibly gritty. I find these folks incredibly tough mentally, physically. They've been tested. They battle. In episode 14 of the On the Touchline podcast, I talked to the head men's and women's coach at Lackawanna College, Rudy Radiger. Rudy's story is absolutely incredible. I won't ruin it and share all the details with you, but he is one of those road less traveled guys or gals that I love. And his experience going internationally, which he'll share in this episode, absolutely fascinating. For anyone that has the ability to do that as a player or coach, we would endorse that on this podcast. I also found what Rudy said about culture as it relates to his team incredibly fascinating. Like Rudy, I often borrow ideas as a coach from other sports. Typically, college basketball is one of the other sports that I enjoy uh, quite a bit. In Rudy's case, there's a quote that he uses from Boise State football, American football. When he goes out on the recruiting trail, he uses a phrase, he's looking for OKGs, meaning our kind of guys or our kind of gals. He talks about that in this particular episode. Culture, when done incorrectly, can ruin an entire program. I think it's important for folks to know a little bit about your coaching journey and kind of how you got to where you are. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to to listen and see this grow. And I think because of what I think we're going to talk to about later, I need to say good day and then Gerediena and Hroshidenya. Um, <laughs> give you a little welcoming there from Lithuania and Ukraine both. 
And we'll get into that later, I'm sure. For me, Jason, the beginning really starts back when I was a kid, uh, Delaware, Ohio, and I was growing up um, a block away from, you know, what is now Jay Martin Soccer Complex at Ohio Westland. And I got the opportunity to get to know Jay Martin a long time ago and just really see how a program um, made me want to play in college, just how they presented themselves in a professional environment. And, and really, as a, like an eight-year-old, I was going down to practices and being a ball boy and just seeing this awesome thing happened. And that was in the, you know, the late 80s <laughs> before soccer was famous and popular. And then, you know, in 92, uh, a lot of people don't realize this until like every June I post on social media, I had brain surgery. Um, was discovered and uh, a tumor removed, which uh, helped prevent the seizures that I'd had for a lot of my young life. And so then, you know, I moved on and I would just kind of skip over a lot of it. But I, I did get a go and play in high school and had a good career at Alexander High School. But I was really lucky to be a part of a great group and have two wonderful coaches who cared about their players. And, you know, I remember having a seizure when I was like school and my old high school coach took me in because my parents were on vacation and just those kind of things but what really kind of pole vaulted me to become a coach and you've talked about it a lot of times about the negative things you know those people that didn't do things and I went to college played at two different schools but I call it I was recruited I was given a story that got me to go there but everything wasn't true and when I tried to get better I was getting blown off you know, it was the get out of my face kind of comments of be consistent instead of actually helping me become a better player. And ultimately, they didn't really worry about the human. And but all those negative things, I think, happens for us. Like my philosophy is life happens for us so we can learn and we can use those experiences to help others. And so I've shaped a culture and my programs along the way. But, you know, it started when I was 23. Um, and then over the next nine years, good grief, I worked with high schools and club and ODP, PDL, did some international um, work as well, stateside, and, and everything from being a coach, being a director, being a scout. Um, I was an athletic director, and I was an assistant coach, and I was a head coach. And I think, you know, the thing I encourage young coaches, get involved in every capacity you can. Because there was this moment, well, roughly when I was like 24, I was fortunate. I became the athletic director for 7 through 12. So I was overseeing 70-plus teams in everything from football and volleyball and baseball. But I was also the varsity coach, oversaw our, a development of a JV program that they had never had, and then really growing our junior high team. But at the same time, I was driving three hours multiple times a week to coach for two clubs and working with ODP as a head coach for a district and then a state assistant coach. So I was working with boys and girls of all ages, all playing abilities, and working with tons of coaches and directors of coaching that helped me really shape and formulate a system and how I saw the game and through other people's eyes and what worked and what didn't. Um, but then, you know, I got, and I, at the same time, I should not forget this, I was refereeing both high school and collegiately. So I was just, you know, you listen to Bob Bradley and people can like or dislike him. But that's what he was doing when he was getting into coaching. He was still playing, and I, I was playing on an amateur team and taking my coaching license and just delving into all this stuff. So when I got into the college game, I had all this experience, and I saw the game differently. And I can look at a, a player that some people say, oh, they're not good enough. But I was a high school coach, and I was a, a coach trainer for basically a, a glorified rec program that the parents coached on the weekends. And so how do you formulate, how do you make that rec player a better player? How do you take that high school player so that you can become successful today, but ultimately you're winning because that player's getting better. Utilize their skills today to, and then at the same time improve them. Um, so when I got uh, my first real coaching job, because I, I was, worked at Bethany College in West Virginia in D3 um, as a kind of a recruiting coordinator and the head coach ended up not staying very long because administration changed beautiful college lifestyle. Um, but my first coaching experience was at Bluefield college in Virginia in the NAI on the women's side. And what you'll start to hear throughout everything is every place I've gone has been really struggling historically 
I, I usually refer to them as dumpster fires. <laughs> um, and so Bluefield had never had a winning season. They'd never made their conference tournament. And we, you know, I was the assistant coach and we got the job like seven weeks before preseason <laughs> and bringing in all these players. And just, you know, I remember the last girl we signed, I saw her in an event 10 days before preseason started. And she ended up being an all-conference player and then leaving to go to Liberty University where she played and was on a team that went to the NCAA tournament. Um, but ultimately, that team was the, set, uh, the third most improved win-loss team in the country, made the conference tournament, had the first winning season in school history. And the head coach leaves, and so then assistant coach has to find new work. And went to Montreat College, where I was the reserve head coach and the assistant vars- uh, first-team coach. And again, it was a program coming off of a two-win season and just delving. And we had a lot more time there, but that team ended up being conference runners up. And I don't know how long the span had been, but it had been at least seven years. And I was there for about 16 months. And then I got the opportunity to go to down to Georgia and the, the sticks of Southwest Georgia to a junior college at Andrew College, which was, again, had not had more than four wins in a 10-year period at any season. And so it was like, all right, now I'm taking all this experience and all this knowledge of finding players at the last minute. And how do you, you know, cause the school was not what most kids think of as college. I used to ask kids, how important is Walmart? And they look at me like I had 10 heads, but in reality it was the, we were 45 minutes on a country road to another state in another time zone to Walmart, which closed at midnight. So, you know, no Starbucks, no movie theater, you know, all those things. And and the college was very small. Um, At one point, I think I had 20% of the school's population between managers, you know, red shirts, players on the team. And so it wasn't what most people would think of. And um, but that first class that we brought in really transcended the program. And I brought in a lot of concepts from other you know, Anson Dorrance, I borrow things from and Boise State football and, and make them my own um, and how I identify players and, and the, the character and the work rate. Because uh, I'm a crazy dude. I've been, you know, primarily working 100 hours a week, basically since I got the job where I am currently in the middle of May. There's been a little exception there, but yeah. to find the players who meet up with that then it's very important. But that group that came in in 2015, my first class, we were 16th in the country and ranked for five weeks and uh, won as many games as the previous three years combined. And then being a junior college, we were placing them all over the country. 20 guys went on to play, and I think it was 19 schools in 17 different states. I tell kids all the time, come here to do your your gen eds, your basics, your foundation, but where you go is going to be different. And it's the right fit academically and athletically. Um, Really caring about the players. And I I will sit with a player when they're doing their class registration so that they're making sure they're taking the right classes so that they're eligible um, so that they can move smoothly and not spend five years in college. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The the international thing really started taking more shape and had a work to work with the British Virgin Islands Federation with Avondale Williams, the national team coach, and kind of became this, this scout. And I want to say it was like 10 players uh, between youth and the senior national team that went on to play for them and are still playing with them now. Um, League of Nations, I looked at their roster and I was like, one, two, three, oh, yeah, there's those guys. Um, and there's more that will probably rejoin them as things move along. So it was just really thinking outside the box and finding avenues for players. Um, and then, uh, as, as you, you know very well, I think, uh, I went to Lithuania in, in 2017, became the first American to, to coach in Lithuania, where I was the technical director, not a quick, um, and for FK Babrungas in the Entreliga, which is the third division. And it was interesting because thank you to the U S national team that didn't qualify the, the perception of Americans then became, Oh, you're not that good. Um, mm-hmm. but, which is funny because in Lithuania, no offense, their the standard isn't as high. Um, but you know, what I experienced there was really unique and interesting because the agents I had worked with decided they were going to try and hostily take over the club, never told me. 
So they were trying to get all this weird information from me. And I was like, it's not your job. <laughs> like your job is to help me get some players and, you know, those kind of things. And then the club thought I was their enemy. So ultimately that ended, uh, moved to Ukraine, um, in 2018 and spent 90 days there. Well, actually it was the end of 2017, uh, spent 90 days there, came back in February, but in Ukraine, it was really close, had a lot of job opportunities and was a fascinating experience and just learning new environments. Um, I feel very comfortable with anybody from anywhere. Uh, I think I've worked with players from like 41 different countries, um, everything from the Caribbean and South America to Eastern Europe and Austria, everywhere in between. So, you know, today I'm at Lackawanna College where, again, I'm um, working on resurrecting, but this time it's both the men's and the women's program at the same time. So I'm the head coach of both, both teams and developed a cons- I'll have a consulting business on the side where I do like coaching and uh, like recommendation and CV design. And I'm currently working with an ownership group who's looking to buy a European club. So it's my life is very strange to where one day I'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning to have a conference call and another day I'll go to bed at 5 a.m. So um, but, it's you know, that that's kind of the, the path. It's it's bizarre and bonkers. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say the, the obvious question is, is uh, when, when do you sleep? But uh, <laughs> you may not do much of that. So that, that's OK. Um, I'm I'm really curious about the sort of the I guess I would use the psychology of wanting to take on programs or jobs that are incredibly challenging. Right. Um, where, you know, uh, a program may not have had the success that maybe you've been able or your team has been able to to bring uh, to the program. And I wonder if there is some connection between your life experiences and some of the adversities you've had to, you know, work through uh, from your childhood and, you know, kind of working up the coaching ranks, if that is, if there's some correlation there. And uh, I don't know, I, I might be speculating. Or no. Playing, uh, our armchair psychologist here or whatever. But, no, I um, think you, you yeah. make a really, really good point. Um, I don't know if you've heard Alan Stein um, Jr., at all. Okay. Um, but you know, I recently was listening to one of my crazy amount of podcasts that I listened to and he was quoted as saying success is not an accident. Success is a choice and the habits you have to, or are the habits you have today on par with the dreams you have for tomorrow. And I think that that really resonates with me because what I see in college programs and very cautious and it's high school, it's club, it's everything in between that, there's always a recipe for success, but most people utilize their experiences rightfully. But if you're come from a box that is very tiny, you don't see outside that box very far. And for me, it's, you know, always looking at ways like how could we do things here, say borrowing an idea from Anson Dorrance has this giant staff and these multi-million dollar facilities and all this success over years. So if anybody's not familiar, what, 24 national team was a women's national team coach. And so he has a cauldron of competitiveness. I can never replicate that here by myself. Well, not here, but I have a, I have a staff here, but two of them are part-time. Uh, so they have other jobs. My old school, I did not have an assistant coach. So how can I take that idea and make it my own? Um, when I do like our psychology here, uh, but I want to get off your question, really and truthfully, yes, Going back to when I was a collegiate athlete, my experience was not what I would say was good, but it was great for me as a coach. I don't want that to be for my players. And when I look at a program and I say, what has been failing? You know, for instance, what I've heard, most of the places I've been, I'll go out and I'll like, you know, traveling already almost 12,000 miles here in my last uh, place. When I built that team, we did, I did 14,000 in a year. So I'm almost, I'm going to surpass that here. But what I hear is people say, oh, I didn't even know your school existed or You've, this school's never done this. And, you know, when you reach out to those people, because there are so many players in this country, you know, in the college game, you're looking at between 25 and 50,000 kids are playing some capacity in college. Um, in Ohio alone, there's over 50 counties. So how many kids are playing just in Ohio alone? 
not to mention California and every year churning out these kids. And, and I'm always looking as a two-year coach to find those kids that get missed, not to compete with four-year coaches. But it becomes because of my experience, like you say, in my life that I get overlooked because I was, didn't have the greatest second touch of the field awareness. Was I put on the bench because of that? I mean, I was a super athletic person who was a fox in the box. You build a team around me, I probably would have scored goals, but no one was building a team around me. So how do I find that player? And then how do I help them get to a higher level? You know, the, those 20 guys got a national champ, got multiple national team players that got capped while they were playing for me, uh, 11 conference titles, five sweet 16s in the last three years. Now, some of those guys were looked at by other schools. Some of them weren't. And how do you find those players? It comes, obviously, because of my, my crazy experience and, and just looking at players in a different light than, I think, a, a traditional person. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I love the, you know, the, the, the saying of, you know, thinking outside the box in terms of how you approach your work. And, you know, um, it can get uh, really easy at times and I think comfortable at times for folks to sort of, uh, you know, I guess you could say, stay in their lane. And, uh, you know, like you said, do what they know and what they feel was right. And, you know, maybe here's a recipe, you know, kind of a plug and play uh, sort of recipe to, uh, you know, for a player to have success or for a coach to have success. And I don't know, maybe if you want to riff a little bit on, um, you know, all the experiences you've had, which is incredibly diverse. Um, I would say probably the most diverse of any uh, guests we've had thus far on this podcast, uh, you know, of how that has shaped your philosophy as a coach. Well, it's interesting because I, I was a player, and I know we'll get into later in, in your, your ending question always, so I don't want to steal some of that thunder. But for me as a player growing up in, in central Ohio when I was young, I had a coach who read a book. And God love Earl Welsh. He was an awesome human being who started a club and, and saw a future. But what we didn't do, even though we got promoted and we moved up, we didn't train. It was the craziest thing, mm-hmm. playing on two or three t- teams at the same time. And so then when I'm in college, I'm sitting on the bench, and I don't know why. But always asking, you know, being very introspective and kind of evaluating myself. What did we do well here? How did we miss on this? How did we really improve that? And for me, I look at the, a lot of players, whether it be American or Caribbean or Eastern, wherever, there's a lot of players who can kick the ball really nice but don't know how to pass it. You know, I talk to players, you know, when I'm doing an event or a showcase kind of uh, ID camp, and I'll say, how many of you played basketball? And there's inevitably 20% or more that say, yeah, some little like whatever. And I say, how many of you know and heard of and understand what triple threat is? And like most everybody raises their hand. When we talk about as coaches, back foot, your opinion of back foot might be different from mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but it's you know so there isn't that concept in our game. So I'm always looking at how can I teach the players how to play the game at a higher level, which is crazy. I'm a college coach; they should all come in ready, right? <laughs> but instead, I'm I'm teaching them really how to play the game at a much higher level, so that the speed of game improves. You know, uh, look at a five foot tall player that other people will no pun intended overlook. But if their brain is on a higher level, or if I believe they're super coachable, then I can take that player and I can and push them on to a, uh, to a place that would have two years previously not looked at them. And, and really, it's what I learned in, in playing in college was identify the right character of people. Because I won't get into all the details and the, the sludge that I experienced, but I played for one program that won two games in two years and it was because of the character of the players. It wasn't because of the talent. And talent is alluring. Every coach will notice the talent. But it's, you know, I'll, I'll go to events and I'll tell you, don't even worry about that player. And they're like, what? And they didn't touch the ball yet. But their parents are carrying their water bottle. Their parents are carrying their bag. Or at halftime, they're taking a Gatorade to them. And I look at that as they're unprepared if they come to my college and they move hundreds of miles away or even a couple of hours away, they're going to need a lot of help. And if we make an entire roster of that, then we're going to not be able to help these players who have opportunity and have potential to get to a higher level. 
And so it's, it's the character. It's, you know, people follow me on social media. will see the acronym OKG. You know, I'm going to find more OKGs. Well, that's what um, I borrowed from Boise State football. And it's our kind of guys or our kind of girls. And the first part is good citizen. They're, and then it's good student and they can play soccer. And when I tell kids, obviously you can play soccer because I'm on the phone with you. But it's that first piece. And I've got to talk about Josh Fines, who's going to be a senior at Spring Arbor in Michigan. When he was a freshman, he gets called into the British Virgin Islands as a 19-year-old. Plays out of position, plays 90 minutes of both games in the, in the Caribbean Cup. He comes back to school, and he's one of four guys that gets capped. And I'm telling them all, like, take the day off. You guys have traveled. You played all these minutes. And he said, Coach, I can't. He goes, I have no talent. He's like, if I take the day off, the people who have talent are getting a plus six or seven. And if I train, I get a plus one. So I have to work seven times as hard as them just to keep up. And those are the people like what I say, Josh Fines is the most technical player. No, but is the guy I always want on my team a hundred percent. And that's what I'm always looking to find because I experienced things in college where the, the culture was corrupt and bad. And I think that's where a lot of people do fail in my opinion. And then the, the results show, you know, bad results are because you don't like, if I don't have that kid who will, be a part of the group, part of the family, the cliche, and go the extra mile for their brother or their sister, then it doesn't matter how much talent they have. They're going to give up at some point. But if they have the character, then you're going to see that kid succeed in life. And I'm telling players all the time, my job is to help you win ultimately. Yeah, we want to win today. Mm -hmm. But we're going to learn lessons along the way. They're going to make you a better player. And in, in the first year, pretty much everywhere I've gone, I always feel the worst for the kids that are there the last, you know, it's their last year with us because they don't get to experience the real transformation that takes place. And, but at the same time, they're always a reason why we make that big jump. And because they, they stuck with it, they had the character. And then those are the players who are going off in life and doing great things. You know, it's not always how many games you play on how wonderful your life ends up being. So th those are some of the things that, through the experiences I've had really teaching these life lessons through the game instead of just, yeah, we want to win. I don't want people to misunderstand that, but I know we'll lose some games because I think like a technical director who thinks big picture long-term and a head coach, which are the most <laughs> diverse hats to wear. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I want to win today. I'm the head coach, but I'm also the technical director. So maybe I need to play this player who's having a bad day so that they understand I trust and in the long run, they will develop because they're playing. And, uh, you know, here as a two-year school, uh, and this goes back to understanding, like, everybody has to define their own success. You know, for one school, that means winning conference titles and winning national championships. For me, success is how we make our players better so they're going off and having great lives. You know, I, I know here I'm so proud because, it's like, half of our program has over 3.5 GPA this fall. And that's an immediate piece of success because I don't think that was really a focus in the past. And, mm -hmm. you know, we go three and 13 my first year here. That sounds bad. But we played nine top 20 teams in the country and we broke nine school records in a positive fashion. So, you know, that's boiling down to the character of the people. Did we have all the right positions? No. But the players who went through those adverse moments, I know when they land at their four-year school, they're going to do so much better for them because they're going to be in an environment where everything's together. And then as we put this 2019 class together, my job is to make sure that rises all the time. I don't, mm -hmm. Hopefully that answered your question. Well, I, I was going to say, I feel like uh, you're inside my head here, Rudy, because uh, the, uh, the soccer IQ uh, piece of what you said is absolutely massive in you know, I, I, a lot of coaches talk about it, but I, I, I get the sense that you really are living it and you're breathing it and you preach it, you know, to the, the players that you're recruiting to your programs. And um, yeah, that, that is so, I don't know, just refreshing and encouraging to hear uh, as a guy who talks to a lot of people in the soccer community, uh, much like you do. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's different because I think talent is sort of like the, uh, the shiny, bright, uh, you know, car or toy or, you know, insert whatever thing you want to insert there. 
but I mean, I, I'm with you. I, I want the gritty character guys and gals. Um, you know, I often, I've told even uh, the person I coach with and I tro- uh, told our DOC, you know what? I would rather take a, take a risk on a couple kids that are, maybe they're not the most skilled kids at the youth level, but you know what? I want to give them a chance and I want to be a person in their life that they can look to and go, whoa, you know, this guy gave me a chance to play soccer and other people said, why well, wasn't this or I wasn't that or you know, you probably saw the thing uh, floating around online about the, the MLS combine and, you know, 40 times and shuttle run times. And it's like that none of that shit matters. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it, it's it's 100% like it doesn't matter. And I, I know when I've talked and I'm not throwing Division One under the bus because they get so many people that want to play, as I call it, the blue label. Understandable. Mm-hmm. They see it on TV. But those coaches then get inundated with maybe 10,000 center backs who want to play at their school. So how do they separate? What do they do? Well, you better be six foot four. And then if you're not six foot four, you go to the trash. And if you are, okay, what's your two mile time? What's your mile time? What's your vertical? And then they come down to like the top 10 kids. They watch their video and then they go visit two of them. And, you know, how do you, so how, like when you're getting inundated, that's where things become problematic. You know, here Mm -hmm. I will probably talk to 10 to 15,000 kids to build two teams. And I know we're going to get like 1% of that, not even 1% of those yeah. kids to come here. But, you know, when, when you talk about the gritty and, and think there's, there's things you cannot equate on paper. Um, I really have to, to really, I'm going to name drop here and a kid that no one's ever heard of probably, but AJ Jackson, AJ Jackson played for me at Andrew college. He was a walk on my first year and I don't take walk ons year two. Just doesn't happen. There's no room. Played two games in two years for me. But that kid was a kid I would take on the road when space was limited. We didn't get to take everybody. Um, didn't love that, but that was the reality. And But I would take him knowing he's probably not going to play a single minute because of what he did as a teammate. This kid would go out to a Josh Fines, a Lewis Jones, a Troy Caesar, a James Quinn. Like all those guys have played in the Sweet 16, won national championships, they're national team players. And he'd be going out and saying, hey, go win the game, play good, you know. And then he's on the bench just rooting them on. And the interesting thing about when you create a good culture, those were the players who were, when I would say, hey, pick a partner, we're going to do some technical stuff. Inevitably, one of them was like, hey, AJ, where in the world do you find the best players asking the guy that's the 36th guy on the bench to, mm-hmm. to pass with them? Like, oh, he's not going to make me better. But instead – he got better, he got better, he got better, he got better. And it was always like, we just were getting better as a team that kept him at the bottom. But I loved him. And, and the, the fun part of it was on sophomore day, it's one of the things I've done at every two-year school, we celebrate the sophomores like senior day. Mm-hmm. And so he gets to start his first game. And I remember he scored the third goal. We're beating this team and we're way better than them top to bottom. So it's 3-0. But then they get a PK and we can talk about PKs and whatever, and then they get a, a goal on a mistake. Now it's three to two, and I'm just, you know, as a coach, you're fuming. We shouldn't, this shouldn't happen. Pride ourselves in defense. But then when the article went up, it said Jackson scores game winner on sophomore day. And I was like, that's the memory. That's the moment that we're creating for these guys. That he'll remember that because he didn't go and play at a four-year school. Yeah. And yeah. Th- those are the things, and there's another um, – Ian McVeigh, <laughs> when I was at Montreat and I was the reserve coach, I ended up not having a, a second goalkeeper. So I had to think outside the box. And here I'm this high school coach, become a college coach. Well, we need a reserve goalkeeper. So I remember going to the basketball coach and say, do you have anybody that has a semester of eligibility left? And he's like, no, yes. Six foot seven, Ian McVeigh, never played soccer, had played football. He had been on the, you know, the team at Alabama, like the the basketball team at Alabama before he came to Montreat. Well, we still share this. It was one of his, he said, one of his best moments as a collegiate athlete was playing on the JV soccer team. And I remember put him on the field in one game and his first touch, he scored. And it was, this is where you talk about the IQ because here's the six, seven guy who was like a wing post player. And he, well, I, I should say it was his second touch because he actually linked up play, played the ball wide, and then went to the hole. Dink, scores. And, 
you know, those things I think can really translate from one game to one sport to another. You know, I borrow ideas from our football program here all the time. They're undefeated, 11-0. I got the number one defensive tackle, number one offensive lineman in the country. And I go and sit and watch basketball and talk to our baseball coach and pick up the things that they do and how can we put that into our training sessions? How can we take the, the way that football runs film session? You know, because we use GPS and match analysis like the pros and national teams. So how do we do that like a professional and national team? Maybe we take the football concepts because they've been doing it for decades. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, I, I agree. Um, and actually, uh, we're going to have a guest on sometime here in the future. Um, he was actually my college roommate, and he was a basketball player. And he coached uh, collegiately for a little while uh, with basketball. And um, he goes, why do you want me to come on a soccer podcast? <laughs> and uh, I told him, I said, it's not – I said, we, we talk about soccer, but uh, – we also talk a lot about leadership and we talk about character and we talk about life and we talk about, you know, how do you get people to be the best version of themselves? And, um, you know, he's, he shared a few stories with me sort of informally. I said, save those because I want you to come back to him for the podcast. And uh, Rudy, I'm exactly like you. Um, I, I, college basketball coaches are some of my favorite to watch um, uh, just in terms of how they lead programs, both on the men's and women's side. Um you know, uh, Gino Ariema at UConn is someone who I find incredibly fascinating, uh, not only because of the success he's had, but to hear him in interviews and how he goes about his work. Uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, on another podcast, uh, Br- Brad Stevens, when he was at Butler and, you know, now with the Boston Celtics, um, of what he was like as a coach. Coach K at Duke, I mean, to be so successful for so long. Uh, at Duke, uh, you know, in men's basketball is, is pretty amazing. So, so I, I guess my follow-up question would be, so, you know, uh, we all try our best, obviously, to get the culture right first, find those players that buy into that. And, you know, you're uh, kind of emblematic of that as the, the leader of the program. What happens when it doesn't go right? Um, <laughs> you know, and if someone doesn't sort of buy in or you go, man, like, I thought we had that person, you know, male or female, and it just goes, man, how'd this get sideways, you know, so quickly? So I'm curious if you've ever had that experience and kind of how you work through it. Well, it definitely has happened. But I want to, before I go on there, I got to drop Nancy Stevens at uh, UConn Field Hockey. Okay. And sure. so when, when we talk about identifying, so she, it kind of ties into your question. I remember her being interviewed on another podcast and she had a team. She said they ha- like to have too much fun. And I was like, oh, they like to party. <laughs> that's what that means and um so she was from the amish area in pennsylvania so she yeah. went out and found a mennonite who played field hockey and i was like really i didn't know that existed uh, you know like you just don't think about that as a but she brought this girl in and then everyone was like oh i need to behave because they didn't want to embarrass her like everybody else was out doing whatever and all of a sudden it changed their culture and I, if i remember right this girl definitely became the captain of the team and it changed the culture and they won a couple of national titles with this girl who you would never have thought about being the fit for, for a nationally renowned field hockey team. Mm-hmm. And so like, sometimes you've got to think of those ways. And I try and I try and head it off ahead of time. You know, we talk about the keys to success here and it's a, it's a borrowed idea that Anson Dorrance, I borrowed from him, but he borrowed from a, a college professor who was teaching PhDs and master's students and uh, for Russian literature. And this professor said to all these students, here, you got to memorize these reams of Russian, Russian literature. And they're all like, of course, like, no way. He's in America. Like, you're not from, you're not in Russia anymore. We're, in, we're not, in, we're not in middle school or elementary school. We're not memorizing this stuff. So they all went back and said, we're not doing this. He goes, okay, you won't get your PhDs or masters. <laughs> Easy job for me. You're going to fail. And so they are, right. And the lady that was, that Anson took this idea from, she goes, what we realized is our thoughts and how we looked at things changed. You know, if you go on a negative side, if we go to say Hitler, why do those people pump out things on, on, you know, radio always saying, do this bad thing. 
it infuses into people. So if they didn't really believe it, they start thinking about it and they start believing it and they start following it. So what we do is our keys to success and it kind of changes year to year and program to program. I have the players memorize quotes that are like the keys to success. And it's where players will hear me all the time. Ralph Waldo Emerson. The quote is what you do speak so loudly. I cannot hear what you say. And that becomes ingrained in them. So they come in and like, well, I really want to be a good student. I really want to be a good student. Well, why have you missed 20 classes then? We've already met about this a dozen times. So you don't really want to. It's just easy to say that because that sounds cool. You want to be a pro. But what are you, going back to that, are your habits getting you there? So if your habits aren't getting there, we need to make those habits. But if that's not really what you want and just sounds cool, then you have a different path to take. And being a college athlete and being a college athlete for me is not for everyone. So sometimes the end result is they move on and they move away from the game. But I want to make sure they understand I'm here for them. I want to help you get there. We're going to set up a plan. But it's the old adage. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And, you know, but I've you look at the the way that those quotes and things have infused in players. And I still talk to players I haven't coached for three or five years and they might not remember the quote, but they remember the premise behind it. And it's the incredible thing to be in connection with players years later and hear how they talk about. And that's where I try and head it off. Yeah. You've got to have those meetings and you bring them in and you talk to them, you sit them down and we're going through that now. Um, At the beginning of the year, I said, my, my um, experience says we're probably going to have six of you that will be on this team next year. And that's not the goal, but that's the experience. And right now we're looking at four to six because we'll have sophomores move on and we have other people that just have not fully committed to what we are now. You know, some of them came before or came uh, to the school in, in regardless, but you lead them, you show them, but not everyone is actually going to agree with it. And that's, that's okay. Makes me sad. But, you know, we um, I've always put together a leadership council and it's not a vent and a a griping session. It's more to let them talk about things, learn. Um, You know, I'll share with players sometimes a video. What do you think of this player? And see what they're. Did you notice this? Did you notice that? And let them see how the coach is seeing and then talk about, yeah, they showed all these highlights but they didn't show when they lost the ball. Like, how does that player respond from that moment of failure? Do they give up? Or sometimes I'll show them a video and the kid like stops, throws their hands up, but they'll say, Oh, he scored this great goal. Yeah. But when he lost, do you want that to be your teammate? Oh no, (laughs) no, I don't. (laughs) Um, So teaching them those kind of things and, and, and kind of exposing where I'm thinking and helping them understand that in life, if you don't show up to practice, or you don't show up to work, or you're always late, you get fired. And, and so sometimes they'll get put on indefinite suspension to see if they're going to come back to the fold because it really means a lot to them. And they just, they're kids. They fall. But do they fail or do they fall? And that's, that's kind of the biggest thing is sometimes we'll test that and send them on the, kind of their own. You didn't want our help. You're still at the school. Do you want to come back? You need to show me you want to come back. My, my wife and I had a very similar conversation with our son last night. And, um, you know, unconditional love as a parent means having those difficult conversations with uh, a child and having, uh, you know, it's always their best interest in mind. And so apply that to coaching. I mean, we try and do the same thing, you know, and um, I mean, it's holding people accountable. It's, uh, you know, challenging them to be the best version of themselves when they see it. And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, everything you said there, I was like, wow, like that. I mean, that really resonates with me, uh, not only as a parent, but as a coach, you know. And um, if, if my son or daughter was playing in your program, I would want that, you know, from their coach. And uh, I mean, you're, you're helping guide them along the path of life. And like you said, the, the context of knowing 
you know, I mean, if we want to say they're kids or young adults or, or however we want to describe them, I mean, they're going to mess up, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's going to happen. We, we did when we were their age, right? I mean, oh, yes. Uh, numerous times. And I'm going, God, like, I wish, I wish, man, I had somebody in my life going like, Jason, like, wake the hell up. Like, the opportunity is literally smacking you in the face right now. Like, why can't you see it? You know, and um, yeah, so it's it's just great to hear that, uh, you know, that's sort of in the, the culture and the mindset, the philosophy. I mean, however you want to describe it. I mean, it's, you know, practicing what you preach, I guess is what I'm. Yeah. Thinking. And I mean, I, I look at it this way. I don't ever want to have to remove somebody and get rid of them. But the thing I look at it is it's better that they learn that reality to life when they're 17, 18, 19, 20, than just thinking the world is this sunshine and rainbows and it's always going to be wonderful. And then they get out in the real world and they don't have the habits that are going to let them be successful. And then they're unemployed and can't pay for their house, can't pay for their car. And, and those are the things that when you have to have those real conversations, it's like, look, you got to change, whether it be to play soccer or be successful in life. They come together. You know, I've, I've never met anyone who's a phenomenal player that was able to be greatly successful in their playing career or life if they didn't have good habits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And though, so the, teaching those habits and really infusing them um, to when no one's looking, what are you doing? And, you know, because the player who comes in fit, they were training when no one was looking. You know, if you expect me to get you fit, it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, you're behind the eight ball and these 15 other players are ahead of you now. And, you know, from the health and safety and all those things, I can't put you on the field if you're not fit. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's – I can only imagine because I don't have children of my own. I just have this wonderful family that across the world, a globe of, of young adults that I've been able to work with. Yeah. So where do you see uh, all, all this going for you as a coach, uh, knowing that uh, you, you've had your hand in, in quite a few uh, adventures uh, along the way? Uh, would you like to stay in the States? Would you like to go international? Um, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a feeling you, you would say that. <laughs> I, I love what I'm doing. Um, I really enjoy the, the school I'm working at and the administration and all the sports that are excellent here. But of course, I love the international game and I will never rule it out of, you know, I, I would love to be on an international capacity at some sp- uh, specific way. I don't know. Um, going back and coaching professionally is, is always something that I look at. I don't have a disagreement with the U.S. professional landscape, but I, can, I see the real foundation in other countries that some of them aren't great. Um, as great opportunity and, you know, always learning and whether that be utilizing different calendars, because while we all say that the MLS is the only one on a different calendar, I can tell you that's false. Um, Ukraine, for instance, has a very long winter break and a very short between season one and season two. So in their summer, they're playing. So why can't I go over there and do something in the summer? shadow coaches and, and, and kind of feed that, uh, learning in a different environment. Uh, it certainly can happen. Um, I stay involved and, uh, you know, doing this weird consulting thing right now with a guy who's looking to buy a club in Europe. And, you know, it's the thing I learned and, um, you know, it's weird cause the, you know, do you know how much USL franchise costs? Uh, off the top of my head, no, but I'm going to say it's probably a substantial sum of money. <laughs> to, to just get the franchise, you're looking at about $7 million. Jeez. <laughs> and that's, that's for the, you know, the USL championship, which used to be just the USL. Yep. Um, but if you look at what this guy's business plan is, I can tell you there are multiple clubs out there that have already had discussions with that within a 10-year well, period, not only could he own the club that already exists – and have a potential to move into Europa and Champions League, he would spend less in that 10-year time frame of purchasing the club and investing in the club than you would just to purchase the franchise rights in the USL. So, you know, like, those are the things that just kind of, like, grease my wheels and keep me interested um, in in all the things that are happening in the world. And so maybe it's, 
I get to have my cake and eat it too and coach college and open up these pathways for players to play internationally and professionally because of weird connections and, and things. Um, maybe it's keep scouting or, or, or work with a youth national team. They're all things that I would love to do, but I mean, okay, I'm almost 39, but I'm still young in the whole coaching realm. So if we look 10 years down the road, maybe my life is a lot different. Maybe I'm still here. Um, so the, the, yeah, yes, your question is, yes, I see both. Okay. Uh, well, maybe that's a, a good segue into uh, the question <laughs> that you know is coming uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> that I ask all my guests. Um, so what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong uh, when it comes to soccer in this country? And uh, I'll let you take that in whatever direction, uh, just given your, your experiences, uh, you know, that you've had in your career. I think really what we're doing well is we're growing the game. We have more experienced coaches who played the game. We have amazing facilities and we have loads of options. Now the loads of options is part of what we're doing wrong, but if we just look, cause we have a plethora of youth leagues and they're all competing against each other. But I can think off the top of my head, we have seven recognizable amateur pro-am and pro leagues on the men's side. The UPSL, the NPSL, USL2, the NPSL Founders Cup, USL uh, League One, USL Championship, and the MLS. That did not exist when I was in high school or college. And so in the, even in the last three years, some of those leagues didn't exist. And the hope is they continue to exist and continue to thrive because it opens up all these doors for the players. Um, and on the women's side, you're looking at, um, let's see here, the Women's Premier Soccer League, the USL Women's League, the United Women's Soccer League, and the NWSL. Most people only really hear about the NWSL. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's what we're doing right. We're providing more platforms and more opportunities for players. So, and, and the, the marketing and everything, you can watch t- soccer all time of the day now, all over the world. And so those are the things that were not there that are really helping grow our game and people, you know, generations. You know, I spoke about my coaches. They didn't play in college. Some of them didn't even play soccer, period. And I look at me and the crazy experience I've had. Well, imagine the players that I'm coaching that are already uh, coaches and running academies and playing collegiately and coaching youth teams. Well, imagine what those kids are gleaning from, from those people. So, you know, having those more experienced coaches and a passion for it and a pathway that they can actually do it now. Because when I was, when I was playing, the only thing I could think of was become a high school coach, like club coaching. It ended up working out, but that was not in my head. Um, I was a silly guy to put in my yearbook. That's what I was going to do is go back to my high school. Instead, (laughs) I've been back to see high school games, you know, like last fall or two falls ago, I guess it was, um, for the first time in good grief, a decade. Um, And and so like, yeah, coaching there is is not in the wheelhouse. But uh, when I look at what we're doing wrong or what we need to improve upon, it's, you know, because of the pay-to-play model, we have people that are trying to win today um, and not winning ultimately. They're, they're failing, in my opinion, to see how they fit in the game. You know, I'm a two-year coach. I don't focus on winning championships. I focus on producing players who win championships. That's my philosophy. It's not right for everybody. But when we're looking at youth players. They're developing cookie-cutter players who can't think for themselves because they've had marionette coaches puppeting them around the field, do this, do that kick to this person, run there, come back and defend. And so we have players who look really good, but actually don't know how to play the game. And, and so I think that's where we're still, we're failing because people want results now. So if you don't win as a U10 coach and win all these plastic trophies, trust me, I've been fired by two clubs as a U10 coach because I didn't win enough. <laughs> but the funny thing is I look it's the golden age, right? I can't take credit because I was there for a year or two years or what have you. I can't take credit for that player. But I think what I did in the technical development, the tactical awareness that those kids will absorb at a super young age, you know, captains of division one programs and players that set records at schools and it, you know, they became really good players. Uh, just as a smidgen piece of, of planting a seed perhaps. But I think you need more of that instead of, oh my gosh, you lost. And, you know, 
how you communicate to players. Uh, you know, if I talk real quick about one place I got fired, uh, I remember like we get thrashed and these girls are devastated and I bring them over and we were a brand new team. And I said to the girls, like, why are you sad? We're embarrassed. We got beat. And I said, but what we've been practicing, what we've been working on that team who's been together for like four years, they're doing so how do you think you can replicate the same thing when it's your first classic experience, if you will, or club experience? How can you, like, we're getting close. They're just so much more experienced because they had played up for two years so they could play U10. So when they were U8s, they played U10. When they were U9s, they played U10. And now they were like a U12 team playing against a U10 team. And so, like, I think more of that needs to happen. We need to have that fluidity of taking that really um, – developed unusual talent and challenging them up in another age group instead of saying, well, I need Johnny because Johnny can run really fast and kick really hard. So my U10 team can blow this team out. No, I'll put Johnny up on the U12 team, see what Johnny can do to develop. So he has to play the game faster and not just run fast. I think that's where we're still struggling uh, where in Europe it was, you know, the amount of kids that I pulled from the U15 team or the U17 team to play on the Entreliga team because it was the best thing for that kid's development. It, uh, I had a previous guest who um, used the word ego. And mm. I think that, uh, man, everything you just said speaks to uh, our, you know, our ego as a soccer country. And uh, I mean, again, I feel like we're, we're living parallel lives here to a certain extent, Rudy, because I, I've had an almost identical experience at the club level. Right. And people get really twitchy when you're not winning enough and it's like, wait a second, you know? And, and then when you put players in situations to really challenge themselves, meaning pushing them up an age group or, or two. And, um, you know, sometimes you're, you're out of your depth for sure, but in the end, I mean, it all works out and it's to the betterment of the player. I mean, honestly, and, um, man, I, I love your answer there. I, I think you nailed it for sure. Um, and the, and, and, you know, to, to not just be negative, I mean, I think the positives because the access my kids have, um, not only my players, but the kids, you know, my, my, my own kids, um, to engage with the game is yes. incredible. I mean, the, the fact, you know, I've told the story before, the fact that my son comes home from school and says, Dad, is there Champions League today? Or is there Europa League today? Or, um, you know, can I put on ESPN Plus and watch, you know, uh, Serie A and, uh, you know, see what Ronaldo's doing or some of the other players? Like, we didn't have that. You, you and I are of the same generation. <laughs> we didn't have that. MLS didn't exist until, you know, post-94. So, um you know, and that was a, a, a big moment in my soccer journey, uh, you know, of World Cup 94. But, you know, as, as other people have said, and, and I'll repeat this, you know, soccer happened well before World Cup 94 coming to the U.S. It just yep. was really hard to find. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're hitting on a lot of good points there. Um, well, yeah, go and, ahead. and if I can if I could say real quick too, the other thing about the exposure, you know, here I am at a two year school. And we're utilizing GPS tracking and I can compare my player and it's, it's a totally different game, but I can compare the distance traveled along with the speed and the hard runs and all these different factors with Ronaldo. Mm -hmm. You know, not only can I watch him play, but I can compare my player. I can see the passing uh, percentage and the tackles compared to Busquets or N'Golo Conte or whatever. And not that I'm trying to compare my players, but if they think they're amazing, and then they have a 60% passing rating. Well, I can tell you that if a player coming from college does not have a career roughly 70 to 80% completion percentage, they don't have a real good shot at it. Now, I could pass five yards and make myself look really good, but there's these different layers that allow the players where before it was like, how do I find this opportunity to play? You know, and now you've got all this opportunity. You can see it all the time. And that, that is so much what we're doing. We're doing right. We just have to produce better players and, and think longer term than today, I think. Yeah. So I don't know if it was in a, a text message or a, a tweet or a direct message. Um, you had said something to me that I, I thought was interesting because I, you know, growing up in a small town uh, just outside of Pittsburgh that, uh, you know, uh, so it wasn't exactly a soccer hotbed in uh 
something along the lines of, hey, look, if a guy from, you know, a small town in Ohio can have all these these experiences, other coaches can have these experiences too. And I, I guess what advice would you offer, you know, to anyone out there who's listening to this? And it doesn't matter really where they're at in their coaching journey, um, you know, to say like, no, like you can do this. Like it's not just like pie in the sky you know, only some people get to do this. Like you worked your tail off, you made it happen. You put yourself out there. Here it is, you know? Well, my, my advice would be, uh, you have to be a creative solutionist, um, to, to really think about if it's what you want, you can do it, but it's not for everybody because I can tell you, uh, what I made in Lithuania was really good in Lithuania, but that does not equate to good money in the U S Sure. So if you have this dream and you have this desire, you can do it. You might sacrifice in some ways and, but they're, they're, I mean, good grief. Uh, I think England has something like 26 different layers to their pyramid. You know, if, if you have this dream and you're a, a young kid and you don't have ties, I'm, I'm sort of fortunate. And some people will say it's very sad, but I'm single. So the things that I can do that, you with a family mm-hmm. yeah. would feasibly not be able to or totally different. Um, I can say that when I got to Lithuania, one of the reasons I got hired was I was single. <laughs> they weren't bringing over anybody with a partner or, you know, a wife or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but they're out there. Um, you have to be very cautious with the, with the different agents, but you know, there's not a job board out there for professional coaches in Europe. Right. <laughs> you, you have to use an intermediator <laughs> system to, to find these things. And that's, it's a different ball game. It's a different concept. And that's where I'm glad I did it. Um, because I can help give some advice and, and direct people from a playing stance or even coaches. I have had people and I encourage, you know, if they've got that desire, I'm all, I'm all here to help. Um, but I would say if you want it, you can find it. It's just like anything in, in life and in the world. If you work hard and you have the basics and you have the talent, you can do it. I would also say if people want to go the international route, they should figure out a way to move into the, um, the UEFA licensing. And that doesn't mean you have to go to England. There's a lot of countries out there that offer it that aren't as expensive, but it's the same license. And, you know, because it is the weird thing, even though we have like this USSF pro license and whatnot, it's not necessarily respected in other parts of the world like you would expect mm-hmm. <laughs> so um but networking creating a, a database of people and you know getting those opportunities to try things and do things um the volunteer experience that you think oh gosh but one of the volunteer experiences i did i worked um the concrete calf gold cup like almost a decade ago and worked in the media side so like those are the weird things that sometimes if you can be involved in the game in every any capacity when i refereed i made connections when i did media i made connections and i'm the i'm the the crazy guy who tracks you know how many contacts i have in my phone but i I was working with a girl the other night i won't say what country she's from but we were having this really long conversation i learned she was adopted and i said have you ever thought about playing for that country She's like, ah, they're not very good. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you wouldn't want to play on the national team? And she goes, oh, well, yeah, that would be awesome. And so I started dropping messages to some of these contacts, you know, because I'm the weird guy that my dad still can't believe I have an agent. Um, and so I dropped it to my agent, and he's like, let me, let me work on this and get back to you. And, you know, so those are the kind of opportunities that I can provide to college players because I thought outside the box – so people open up that horizon and do random things in the game, you'll just create this much better uh, network that if you want to get there, you can. Because if you talk and you network, people will be like, oh, I know of this thing. And they'll think about you because you were that person who actually approached it and had that goal. If, uh, if folks want to connect with you on social media, how can they do that? It's easy. I'm on um, Twitter and Instagram. Um, they could even find me on Snapchat if they really wanted to. So basically all going to be my life of, of soccer. <laughs> and um, it's all rude 
sports. That's like Rude Venistory, R-U-U-D, sports. So anybody can connect with me that way. And um, they can send me an email as well. And I won't labor them on uh, my, my last name. But um, they can find me at, uh, on our website with Lackawanna College. Um, so that, those would be some different ways. And reach out to me. I'm happy to connect. And we can chat. And we can. But Rude Sports is the best way. Okay. Uh, folks, if you're, if you're not following him on Twitter or Instagram, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a misstep on your part because you need to, uh, to get in touch with Rudy and, uh, yeah, he has been incredibly gracious with his time and willingness to, uh, engage with me as, uh, as the host of the show. So, uh, Rudy, I can't thank you enough, man, for, uh, for coming on the latest episode of on the touchline and, um, you were a fantastic guest and, uh, would love to have you back anytime. Well, thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. I'm going to keep looking forward to every guest you have. You've been doing a great job. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. Before we call it a day for episode 14 of the On the Touchline podcast, I just want to thank my guest, Rudy Radiger, for coming on the latest episode of the show. And Rudy, I wish you in the Lackawanna program nothing but success going forward. Welcome to come back on the show anytime you'd like. And if you're ever in the Pittsburgh area, uh, a coffee or drink of your choice is on me. Before we go, uh, a few friendly reminders. You can support this show in one of two ways. By going to anchor.fm slash on the touchline and making a small monthly contribution. So for as low as 99 cents per month, you can support this show financially. That would mean the world if you're able to do that. Also, please share the show on social media. If you're engaged in the soccer community on social media, you know there's a very active audience. Uh, I am active on Twitter or Instagram, and you can find me at SoccerCoachJB. Feel free to tag me at any time, share episodes that you enjoy out with friends. Uh, and please, please, please use the hashtag on the touchline. Last but not least, we're available on nine different podcasting platforms. If you listen on Apple Podcast, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review like I mentioned earlier in this show. All right, great episode lined up for later this week. And until next time, this has been the On the Touchline podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater.